Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is a familiar face and a familiar voice. Laura Ryan, Chief Executive of Laven Park, and of course my former co-host here on The Picklist, is back as a guest to chat about what she's been up to and share her take on the latest food and meat industry news. I was so excited to have Laura back on the show. I know many of you have missed her too, so it's just brilliant to be able to catch up with her. So that's coming up in a moment. But first, let me bring you up to speed with some of the big headlines from food and grocery retail this week. Sainsbury's announced its latest financial results and said it was in a good position going into Christmas despite supply chain and labour shortages. Its half-year profits stood at £541 million after a £137 million statutory loss last year. UK meat producers have started sending carcasses to EU countries for processing because of ongoing labour shortages in the UK meat sector. The British Meat Processors Association said beef was being sent to Ireland for processing, while some pork producers were looking to get carcasses processed and products packed in the Netherlands. Iceland, the retailer, has pledged to become plastic neutral by 2022. As part of this new commitment, it will recover and recycle waste plastic to the equivalent amount of its own total plastic consumption. The retailer had previously also pledged to become plastic free on its own label lines by 2023, but said it may not be able to hit that target. Coca-Cola announced it is acquiring sports drink brand Body Armour for $5.6 billion. Body Armour is a key rival to Gatorade, which is owned by PepsiCo, and this is Coca-Cola's largest deal for a single brand to date. For context, the Costa deal was worth $5.1 billion. The Dairy Roadmap Initiative has unveiled a climate ambition paper outlining new sustainability commitments to get the UK dairy industry to net zero carbon by 2050. Amazon has opened its seventh Just Walk Out checkout free store in the UK, and it just happens to be across the road from Tesco's new checkout free store in Holborn. Sainsbury's head of agriculture Barney Kay is leaving the retailer to join meat supplier Pilgrims UK as its new agricultural director. And Asda is permanently introducing a quieter hour in all its UK stores to make shopping in-store more inclusive for people with hidden disabilities and added needs. During the hour, which will be from 2 to 3pm Mondays to Thursdays, noise levels in-store will be reduced. And finally, as concerns about supply chain disruption and availability of products this Christmas continue, Heinz unveiled a limited edition Christmas dinner in a can. The dinner is, in fact, a soup, 
and it contains big chunks of turkey, pigs in blankets, Brussels sprouts, stuffing balls and potatoes with a gravy and cranberry sauce. It costs £1.50 per can and it was available through the Heinz Direct-to-Consumer site but quickly sold out. These are the key stories this week. You can find links in the show notes and on thepiglist.co.uk. And now here's my conversation with Laura Ryan. Laura, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. It's great to be back. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to have you back on. Now, regular listeners of the show will, of course, know that we used to present The Picklist together and then you got super, super busy with all sorts of projects and you had to step back from presenting duties. But I promised listeners at the start of this season that I would have you on as a guest. So I'm Super excited to make good on that promise, and I can't wait to quiz you on everything that you have been up to. But I thought it might be worth doing a proper round of introductions, uh, as I would with any other guests, so listeners actually get to learn a little bit more about you as well. So, Laura, you are Chief Executive of a consultancy business called Laven Park, where you work with companies, particularly in the meat industry, and also with levy boards and trade organizations. You're also founder and global chair of Meat Business Women, the networking and membership organization for women in the meat industry. And you are co-founder of Global Meat Alliance, which works to connect the global meat industry and share insight and, and best practice across borders. The common theme here is meat, How did you end up working in and working with the meat industry in the first place? There's a bit of a meaty theme, isn't there? There is. There is. (laughs) And and the honest answer is by total accident. So um, when I finished uni, I was just looking for a marketing job. I've got a a degree in marketing and a master's in management. And I'm a real homebody, uh, as we know, because we spend a bit of time together up in the northeast, still based in the northeast of England. And I saw a marketing job advertised at a meat and poultry wholesaler just down the road from me. And as a kid, I didn't even go to the butcher's shop, didn't like the smell. So it wasn't really a natural sector to be going and having a look at. Um, and I've got no agricultural background whatsoever. I haven't even got a pet, which I know some of the <laughs> folks in the industry think is hilarious. Like, what livestock have you got? Absolutely none. Not even a goldfish. But um, I loved the job. I loved working in the meat sector and the challenge, the pace. No two days were the same. And just absolutely got the bug for it. So 20 years later, I am still here, still loving it. And yeah, now having that portfolio career you've so kindly outlined. And uh, just and from the very get-go, it's still the same. No two days are the same. It's still challenging. Boy, is it. And I know we'll, we'll chat about that shortly. But it's it's a great sector to be involved in. And it's it's funny because when I chat to my mates on a weekend about, you know, what is it you've done this week? And not not obviously through COVID times, but in normal peace times, you say, oh, I've been out on a farm or around an abattoir or something like that. And go, God, how weird's that? That that sounds well weird. How awful. So uh, I find myself justifying how great the meat industry is on, on a lot of occasions, which uh, I guess has led me down the path to do things like Meat Business Women and, and Global Meat Alliance. Absolutely. And I think particularly on this point about sort of championing the industry and, and I suppose kind of correcting some misconceptions that might exist as well. Can you just talk a little bit about how the idea for Meet Business Women came about? What were you seeing in the industry and around the industry that made you go, actually, there's there's a role to be played here or a different organisation that, that can fulfil an important role? It feels weird being on this side of the Fed, Julia. Your questions are so good. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Uh, just think about it as a profession. So uh, I think it was when um, when my job was getting more senior. So I was a director of the beef and lamb board. I was often the only woman in the room at a lot of these meetings, and I was thinking, well, where are all the other women? Uh, and then I would maybe rock up to one of these, you know, nice park lane dinners on a Friday night that the industry would hold, and I would see other women in the room, but I would think. I don't know them and I really like to connect with them um, and as I've already sort of mentioned I knew we had a reputational issue about well why would you want to work in this sector so um, I just reached out to my network six years ago and booked a room on my credit card in London very naively to have a bit of a networking event to see if there was an appetite for people to come together on a regular basis and if I'd be too brutally honest I wasn't looking to build the global juggernaut that Meet Business Woman has become and if something had already existed I'd have very happy just booked a ticket and jogged along to said already um organization but because it didn't and because I guess of that passion that I felt in the room that very first event where there was just this great community of people that are very um passionate as I say about the industry but just have no outlet to come together to share challenges opportunities and just to network uh, that that's just driven us forward so yes six years later we're recognized by the UN and operational UK Ireland Australia and New Zealand and just good going great guns with 26 commercial sponsors so yeah it, it's not bad for back of a fag packet idea uh, six years ago but uh, if you told me where it was going to be now um, then I would have said oh no thanks don't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> and as you know it's the, the favorite thing that I do now so uh, yeah it's very rewarding yeah absolutely and I think that the scale and the scope of the activities that you do within um meet business women I think is also a quite amazing because you've gone from something that was very much about providing a, a networking space for for women to meet other women in the meat industry to now having uh mentorship organizer opportunities to uh, recognizing up-and-coming talent I mean it's sort of it's expanded hasn't it in in, in terms of uh, the scope quite massively it has. And yeah, because of the labour challenges that we're experiencing right across the grocery market, but as we know, particularly in the meat sector, it's never been more important to attract and retain talent. So I guess that's why our conversations and our, our membership continues to grow. And as you say, that the mentoring is just absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, loving it. And uh, it challenges me every day. <laughs> I'm really curious, though, about your consultancy business as well. So can you just talk a little bit about what Laven Park does and what sorts of projects you would typically get involved in with the meat industry? Yeah, it's a, a real mixed bag of projects, really. So um, I'm just naturally curious. And as you know, because you know me well, I, I just like chatting to people. So um, I guess a lot of those conversations very naturally and organically lead into, well, we're thinking about X, Y and Z. Can you can you go and, and do this work for us? So some of that is with levy boards, um, as you mentioned in the intro, and that that's domestic levy boards here in the UK and some international ones, too. That could be in, um, insight. Uh, both primary research and looking at secondary research and sort of strategy advising really about you know if I'd hope I've got my finger to the pulse about what's happening in the sector so having that external view for some of the businesses particularly on the commercial side that I deal with I think they found that really beneficial that a lot of these things they might know already but to have it presented in a different way with a different viewpoint and through a different lens can be hugely advantageous to them uh, particularly when they're making big uh, board strategic decisions where they've got a bit of an external view so yeah I've got a nice group of um, 
both commercial and, and levy board uh, sector organisations, which I, I chat to all the time. And uh, yeah, I, I feel part of the family really within some of those organisations now, which is great. And when you're chatting to your contacts in the meat industry at the moment, you've already touched on labour challenges. Obviously, you know, one of those challenges that absolutely dominates thinking at the moment. But what, aside from that, what are the big issues that are really front of mind for people in the meat industry at the moment? Yeah, I think it's a it's great, great, great question. And then obviously the, the labour is up there and trade deals is obviously one of the things that's been, been discussed and it's, it's always up there and uh, I guess some of the, the the feedback from the Australian and the, the New Zealand recent trade, trade deals, particularly in the meat sector, have, have obviously challenged maybe some of the thoughts of the farming unions over here. Uh, I think policy and the future agricultural policy in the UK in particular as well is going to be um, continue to be front of mind. What's that going to look like for people? And I think for big processes down to individual farmers, they don't probably really know where they are where they are at in terms of policy and government agenda and all the rest of it. So I guess it feels just uncertain times. And I think um, the other thing that comes out from my conversations with at the moment is they're just absolutely exhausted. Mm. When you chat to the supply chain at the moment, you know, that they're, they're saying to me a year ago, we thought it was bad. We were, we're, in the, we're about to go down into another lockdown and we we're battling away with COVID. But actually, in hindsight, that felt relatively easy. Now we're dealing with, you know, what's happening in terms of labour, trade deals, Brexit. Uh, policy it's all coming at us and I, I guess one, one of the phrases I, I've been told a couple of times is, I just feel punch drunk at, at a real CEO level just you know day after day making these massive chunky decisions and the zero playbook for what, what I don't know Christmas trading is going to look like let alone next year trading and it's it's just all up for grabs so, yeah it's, it's that level of uncertainty I think is really challenging on, on all fronts. Yeah. And on the pick list over, you know, various seasons, we have spoken at at different points about the rise of things like the plant-based trend, lab-grown meat, things like that. To what extent are they high-profile issues for the meat industry at the moment? Or is it the fact that it's the the day-to-day stuff and just getting your head around things like Christmas trading and labour challenges, is that really where most of the attention is at? I'm feeling it's more tactical and strategic mm. at the moment. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, I don't speak to really any of the meat businesses that are particularly worried about plant-based um, lines and products. And as we know, a, a lot of them have their own anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's a there's an opportunity to coexist here and feel comfortable in that coexisting territory. I think where it fits, starts to feel more uncomfortable with, when it becomes a total no meat agenda. And I think we, we're seeing that more and more from um, COP and um, mm-hmm. potentially from UN Food Systems Summit. I think that that's the unsettling thing. But at the moment, if I'm to be brutally honest, we just try, the, the supply chain feels like it just wants to keep those supermarket shelves full, wants to fulfill retailer contracts, wants to understand how the, the cost of inputs, which have just all skyrocketed, how that's going to be offset. Now, I do want to quiz you a little bit on your articles, but before we do that, let's talk about your reading habits and what you're like as a reader. And after three seasons together on the pick list, I have a fairly good idea of what you're like as a reader, but share with our listeners, what are some of the publications that you enjoy reading to keep up to speed with the industry and what sorts of stories tend to capture your attention? 
Yeah, you're funny because I would have thought you would have said very short articles. It's probably, <laughs> <laughs> it was the weeks that you sent me a, a short essay. Oh no, I like a short, a short article with a lot of pictures. So um, I suppose the way I know it sounds weird, and it's been interesting, and you know, from the three series of the pick list we did, and asking this question of other people, um, and I always think of Chris D. But when he said about you know he gets a lot of his insight from Twitter, and it's all digital, he gets nothing hard copy anymore whereas I feel like a real Neanderthal because I still love hard copy and so I love the grocer on a weekend I love that tangibility of being able to tear a page out highlight something scribble on it and it really helps me to absorb the articles um and I'd be the same I guess Sunday times as well I just love on a Sunday just going through all of that and um as you know I like the personal CEO stories um, and understanding what makes people tick. So something like James Timson's stories um, or, or column in the Sunday Times always attracts me, as does the, the big interview in The Grocer, because it's just people buy from people. Uh, and I think it takes a brave person to be really authentic and open and uh, transparent about their business um, drivers and what, what's behind them. And I think that makes the business even better. So, yeah, I always like reading those sort of articles. Fantastic. Now let's talk about the first article. And I'm actually going to be a little bit rude because I'm going to ask you to talk about one of my articles first, but I think it will link in quite nicely to some of the challenges that you've already talked about that are very meat specific um, at the moment. So this is a piece from The Telegraph and the headline is Meat Taxes Will Make British Farmers Go Greener, says George Eustace. This article is interesting for a number of reasons, partly, of course, because of that claim made in the headline, but also because since it was published, other cabinet members, notably uh, Liz Truss and Alex Sharma, have come out and been quite quick to pour cold water on the idea of, of meat taxes, certainly. So there's a, a degree of division within government on, on the direction of this. But uh, just for the purposes uh, for, uh, of the discussion, just a super quick recap on what George Eustace, uh, the Defo Secretary of State actually said to the Telegraph that this article is based on. And the context here is that the current system for EU agricultural subsidies is being phased out post-Brexit. And so the government is exploring a number of potential new approaches, which could include different incentives to encourage UK food producers to produce higher welfare and more environmentally friendly food. And as part of that discussion, one of the possible avenues that's being explored is the idea of new taxes or levies on sectors like meat, like dairy. It's being talked about as something that is being researched or explored as opposed to something that's necessarily being turned into policy. But George Eustace in this interview is signaling his support for that idea in principle. And the way he's being quoted on this is actually that uh, he thinks the UK might need to move into the realm of something like carbon taxes at some point in the future. It would be post-2027, really, when we're talking about that. And so, Laura, I suppose I've already said other government ministers have poured cold water on this already. So this isn't necessarily something that's going to translate into policy straight away. But I suppose from a meat and dairy perspective, you're still reading this and going, that still suggests that something like a carbon tax on meat is being explored with a degree of seriousness, if that's the DEFRA secretary coming out and saying that. How would the meat industry have seen, have read an article like that? 
I think it would be really demotivating for the meat industry, particularly when we're looking at the supply chain that that is doing something. If the supply chain wasn't moving, and I can see this is why, you know, some of these taxes come in, particularly like sugar tax and that sort of thing to reformulate products, then I guess there's some justification for it. But across the board, you know, NFU, major processors, retailers, and they're, they're, and, and you know, obviously yeah, Morrison's and Sainsbury's dropping their net zero targets by five years in the, in the last week, that will force the change. The change is naturally coming. Um, so I, I don't know if a, a meat tax is needed to create more, I guess, uh, environmentally friendly and better welfare um, products. And I guess, I suppose it, the devil, devil's in the detail, isn't it? What does better welfare mean when, you know, if if it was Minette Batters set here, she would say we've got the best welfare in the world. Um, and, you know, when you, you do, do look at the benchmarking, we have got really high welfare standards. So you know what what does good look like uh, and then also the measurement piece it's really interesting that i think in time a lot of retailers will move into having and we've seen it already haven't we you know eco score and, and different things coming down that the track in terms of labeling on pack and um little trial trialing something and i know that, that there's quite a big trial in uh, belgium at the moment so that i think that will come that will be commercially drivers by retailers to, to cover those sort of things and I think also coupled into this and I think this will probably be the other frustration is meat prices food prices are going to go up inflation is coming and I know it was sort of played down quite a lot of the budget um a week 10 days ago wasn't it but actually you know speaking to industry it's it's six to eight percent up it's going to go because as we know a lot of meat products are probably selling at the moment and at retail under what their, their wholesale value is and that will probably naturally more find a level within the market and i suppose that the final thing to mention is ultimately if a part of balanced diet meat is a nutrition a good nutritional product if you to tax that when we've got in uh, western europe we're, we're the most deprived country with so many people on really tight budgets and prices are going to go up anyway what are they going to default into buying probably higher processed food so yeah I think it's just another frustration that are we looking at the bigger picture and are we mapping what's happening commercially as opposed to what consumers want at the same time? What, what are you? I'm really intrigued what your thoughts are because I'm so close to this. Sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. What, what, what do you think? I mean, the, the reason I picked this, aside from wanting to hear your take on this, is partly because I, I do think it's interesting just how divided government is is on mm. this. Um and I think just I think it's I think it's noteworthy that George Eustace has come out and you know it's not sort of a, a super strong statement saying this is definitely the direction of travel we're going but I think it is one of the clearest indications yet that that this is being explored with a degree of seriousness so I think it's noteworthy um, that I think this is um, a more likely prospect than it perhaps would have been in the past. I suppose for me, the sort of interesting question is around this whole less but better ethos that's being talked about a lot in the context of, of meat consumption. And how is the meat industry sort of making sense of this less but better ethos? Because I find on the one hand, it sort of makes people very nervous, but I think there are parts of the meat industry and dairy actually as well that actually sense a real opportunity in that as well and make a more compelling argument around standards and the quality of the products. 
It's a really good question again. And, and um, there was a, a great article in The Gross, wasn't there, a couple of weeks ago about mm-hmm. on, on, less, on Less But Better. And I was really intrigued on some of the sound bites in it. And it's a real mixed bag when you speak to industry, uh, because pre- if we're talking about beef in particular, the premium market is doing well. People are trading up to premium and they have done for the last 18 months or so as people want that restaurant experience at home. Um, and even food service is doing particularly well now. People have got... Uh, or a good proportion of of, um, the population have got a bigger disposable income because they haven't traveled, haven't gone on holiday. And I think, um, was it about 7K a year? People are saying that actually a a chunk of the population have burning a hole in the pocket. So they actually do want to trade up to to, to a stake um, that that they may not normally buy. But when you talk to some retailers about this, you know, they talk about, well, what the the single mum in the middle of Doncaster with three kids is she really going to want to spend more of a disposable income on less but better when utilities are going up, petrol's going up, everything's going up? And in, in the cold light of day, price is still the number one driver for food purchases and, and definitely in the MFP category. But um, I, I can see us buying less, uh, but are we actually going to be buying better or are we just going to be paying a fair price for what, what is already good on the shelf and I suppose maybe that's what Ranjit um, from Baparam was saying wasn't he uh, about you know it's not going to be the cost of a price of beer anymore three pound the days of the three pound chicken have gone Um, you know we, we have to pay a fair price for food so I don't know about the better argument but I can definitely see the less coming in time. Yeah, I was interested in what you were saying there, actually, in um, referring to um, consumers potentially trading up to treat themselves to a really nice steak, um, because they, at least some people have have a little bit more disposable income at the moment. Um, Do you see a danger in the less but better ethos in that it sort of implicitly pushes people towards more prime cuts? in a way that is not necessarily going to be that helpful, obviously from a carcass balance point of view, but also just generally kind of sustainability point of view. Do we not also need to figure out a way to make the case for better mints uh, rather than always conjuring the sort of image of, of treating yourself to a nice premium steak? Yeah, it's, it's great shouting at retail. It's, I think it's at the, the least about 55% of, of beef sold at retail's mints. So that, yeah. that there is some balance there that, that definitely we could drop less in mints and, and put it into maybe lesser known staking cuts for sure. I suppose the example I, I would use on that would be more food service. So if we're pushing premium cuts at food service and the re- retail sector is doing well, then the, as we know, there's only a finite supply. So what that will pull in, it, it, and we've seen it played out in the in the press over the last six weeks or so Australian product and other product which will eat well and will be consistent and the data tracks at food service that country of origin really isn't a big player it is still about that experience it's about that uh, taste and, and that meat quality so I think that's where we'll see actually if there is a imbalance in the supply chain retail is king that will drive the, the volumes and food service will, will will trade elsewhere and we're already seeing I'm picking up on the grapevine that some key um, food service players are starting to look at um, uh, um, non-UK product because of the, the, the demand for it in retail and the prices as well that are just going up and, and going to European or further afield on, on some um, meat, meat, fish and poultry products, which is fascinating. 
And you mentioned right at the start, actually, that, um, you know, you you do work globally, um, Global Meat Alliance in particular, you know, you're very well connected with um, so, uh, with, with representatives from, from meat sectors around the world. How do they look at some of the debates that we're having within the UK, and particularly some of the reactions to some to, to trade deals recently here from UK producers have obviously been uh, quite negative. How does that affect the way we can still have conversations with Australian and New Zealand counterparts. Share a little bit of insight of, of how those conversations are playing out. Have they become more awkward in light of some of those reactions? <laughs> um, not for me, but I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that, that they have in some quarters. And it's interesting because of the way that the meat industry at um, levy board or at uh, farming union level are funded, then it has to be a country of origin discussion. So what we try and do with Global Meat Alliance is to have a single narrative that it's okay to eat meat and it's positive to eat meat. And if you want to go and differentiate off the back of that, brilliant. But what you don't do is you don't um, play the negative hand against another country's production system. And that's tough. That's tough when you're the, the, the NFU, for example, and they need to be seen to be saying certain things. But I guess for let, let's talk about the Australian deal, that the yes, the, the, there is a potential for more product to come here. But as we've already talked about, it's probably going to be food service. It's probably going to be high value. And when you look at the, the data flow and the, or the product flow rather from Australia, the UK isn't a major market anymore. It, it, it's Asia and, it, and it's elsewhere. So I think we, it's really important we don't lose our eye here and just start fighting with each other that, yes, we need to make sure that we're protected and that there's equivalent standards and all that sort of thing. But what we need to do is make sure we defend the category at all costs before anything else. And it's interesting. I, um, I was, um, I, you know, I'm a total geek. I was sitting on, <laughs> there was a North American meat industry uh, conference just a week ago and I, I was sat watching that one evening. I know that is really how sad my life is. <laughs> and they were showing some data, uh, consumer data that you would see all day long over here, like the likes of HDB would publish it. They were publishing their consumer trends about what they thought about American production. And they were saying, and their cons American consumers were saying, we want American product because we're nervous about imported product. So us saying, well, we want British because our consumers are nervous about any other um, production system. It's the same the world over. Yeah. Everyone's we're just creating this panic about all this other product when actually it, it's probably fine. And um, on the environmental front, you know, the, the Aussies and the Kiwis have got really ambitious programs to be net zero and to, uh, and to drive change as much as, as we have up here. And I guess one interesting thing to, just to mention is that even if some of these countries aren't as advanced as the UK, and a lot of them aren't because we've got that really competitive retail base, which drives change, um, they are tracking us and they know that if we change up here, they need to change too. And they've got that agility and fleet of foot. So yeah, I, if they're not there yet, they bloody will be soon. Now, we'll move on from meat for a little bit because your next article is from Forbes and the headline is, What's Keeping Your Grocery Retail CEO Up at Night? So the minute I saw that, I was like, that very much fits in with the kind of article that I know that you enjoy. But I thought this was quite interesting, actually. It's uh, more of an analysis of some of the key issues, really from a US perspective, um, th that, are, that are really dominating the debate in retail. And 
the author of the article picks out three issues in particular that will sound very familiar to the, the sorts of conversations we're having here in the UK at the moment. It's labour shortages, it's climate change, it's transportation and logistics. And then not in isolation, but looking at how those three issues then affect prices and availability in food stores. Why did you pick this article and what stood out to you? Thank you. So I'm naturally, as I've said, a naturally, naturally curious person. And when I'm when I'm having a CEO conversation myself with someone, that is one of the questions I ask because it's quite disarming and it gets to the nub of the issue. Um, or if I'm off to see somebody and maybe I'll have a ring around their contacts beforehand and think, right, what do I need on the list to, to mention to this person? I'll say, what will be keeping them awake at night? And it's just funny, isn't it? Because it, back to why I said, you know, I like these human interest stories, these CEO stories. It's, you know, we, we all fit, we're all human and we'll all be sweating about something. So what is it and what are the major challenges? So I, I like that the, the, the headline grabbed me. And I suppose the, the next thing was that we are so entrenched in the UK about these are our issues. And is it because of Brexit and COVID and all the rest of it? But I think it's so fascinating to see that these issues are worldwide um, and it gives you maybe a moment of comfort and thinks, oh, great, it's not just us. Uh, but then it, I guess it then shows you what a challenge we're in uh, in the food sector because of um, these three key issues, as you say, that are outlined. Um, and then the other reason I really liked it is because it spoke in the article about the UN and the UN Sustainability Programme and the fact that CEOs now not only have to lead a business, and as it says in the article, you know, pivoting through, you know, e-commerce, redesigning, um, heavily investing in new technologies, all this stuff through, through uh, come through COVID. The relationship now they need with major NGOs like the, the UN is just absolutely phenomenal when you have to be this statesman now, um, not just a, a business leader. And that toolkit that, that CEOs need is just evolving and changing all the time. And yeah, I, I just thought it was really fascinating to hold the US up as a mirror to see their challenges and to realise the role of the CEO is changing. And actually, it'll be interesting to see in times to come, key appointments, you know, we're waiting for the for the ASDA CEO appointment. I think that was still TBC. It'll be interesting to see you know, someone like that. Is it, is it the usual retail um, uh, supremo or is it someone with a slightly different skill set because the game's evolving? I think that's a super interesting observation, actually. And who do you think or what kind of skill set do you think would potentially be relevant here? Would you could you imagine someone who perhaps comes more from a sort of NGO background, a more political background rather than a pure business background? Or, or who do you have in mind or, or the, what kind of person do you have in mind? For? Yes, no, um, I think it's someone that yeah understands the politics more and not only on a domestic level but on a um, a global level as well definitely which probably was never the case five ten years ago that you would have a corporate services director that would look after all that for you or you you know you, you would lean on the trade organization to to help you with that but now I'm seeing more and more CEOs having exposure and airtime with 
um, uh, policymakers and a more senior level. And I suppose let's give the example of Sainsbury's being a principal partner of COP this fortnight. That mm. you know that 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 sets them into a very different space. So to be able to have those conversations, I, I think is important as opposed to ringing uh, just running a. Oh, I say just. It's, I know it's really hard. Uh, <laughs> just uh, running a retail business and arguably are those skills more transferable and easy to get if you get a good team around you and you get a, a, and um, I hate using the word statesman because it, it feels very male but a person that's that's capable of yeah that th- th- that policy skill set and I'm um, I, I suppose I, he's, he's gone very quiet but I think of some like an appointment made by um, Facebook I know it's now Meta but someone like Nick Clegg and you know they bring people in um, of that sort of political animals that understand um, and I'm wondering you know will we see more of retailers bring in these ex high level um politicians uh that, that that will have impact notwithstanding i know that there's something in the press this week about potential uh suspensions of mps for lobbying so i know they need to be careful hence the word neck x but yeah I, I i think we'll see some changes in that space and certainly there seems to be a desire from government to bring in some of that retail expertise as well. I mean, you know, Dave Lewis being the, the obvious example there, having been brought in to head up or at least advise some of the government's efforts on shoring up supply chains. Um, so it seems to already be a little bit more of, a, of an exchange there. But um, are you finding from a meat perspective that there is more interest in I suppose not necessarily bringing in CEOs, but board members that have that very specific sustainability and climate change expertise as well. I was reminded there was a really interesting piece in the FT um, the other week, looking at how some of those board appointments that can bring in really specific expertise around managing challenges to do with climate and sustainability are becoming more important. Are you seeing that reflected in how meat companies are starting to think about their board composition? Yeah, I think across the board, I think the ESG agenda is now hugely important to the meat sector Um, and particularly the PLCs in the meat sector. It's, you know, pretty much at the top of their list about how they're reporting on it, uh, how they're reporting against the UN Sustainable Development Goals and all, all of that. Um, I'm unsure if they've got any dedicated people on boards. I'm sure that I know the operational teams below, you know, the, 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 in it, you, you just need to open LinkedIn to see the sustainability directors and all these roles that are, um, that are, are growing and the teams that are growing, which is really important and good to do. But you're probably right. We'll see more of that at board level. If there's not a specialist that we're seeing the output through through ESG and board reporting, but that, that will come in time as well, for sure. Now, your final article is from Cam City, and the headline is MS to Roll Out Opticians Service. So, this is the news that Marks and Spencer will add an optician service to 55 of its stores over the next 18 months following a successful trial at five stores. And MS in the article is quoted as saying it's part of its efforts to diversify its services and give shoppers more reasons to shop at MS. And of course, it will also help with using up excess space across some of their store estate as well. I know you like a, you're always interested in a good retail format story. We've talked a lot about M&S um, over, over the past few seasons of The Piglist. We've talked a lot about John Lewis and some of uh, the work that they've been doing to kind of reinvent some of um, their space as well. What do you make of this latest M&S move and uh, what stood out from you uh, and what stood out to you from the article? 
See, my dream would have been a John Lewis story, but there was nothing. <laughs> there, 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 there was nothing this week. So, but this this was very good as well. Um, I just think it's fascinating, isn't it, that um, you just need to step and spend some time in retail about how much spare space there is. But you know, not only um, the the MSs of this world and, and John Lewis noticeably, but also that the major malts are, of you know closing counters and just have a lot of space. And what are they going to do with it? How are they going to drive? Uh, footfall and I'm just so interested with this shift into service we've seen it from John Lewis sort of setting up spas and nail bars and all that sort of stuff in, in their stores and personal shoppers and, and and that sort of thing but I think the opticians moves is a sweet one for for M&S and I just really liked it that I thought when I'm thinking about and it has sort of hearing care involved as well I think it probably puts them puts them up against boots who have had mm. some challenging times um, and you think, right, if you want that one stop shop and that brand that you can trust, uh, M&S is strong in that position, probably for a certain demographic as well, which has that disposable income that we, we chatted about earlier. And I also was interested about the um, the branding that there's going to be some M&S branded um uh, frames in, in, yeah. the, in the opticians which again I thought really interesting to, and uh, what we've seen from m and I guess over the last um, couple of, year, of years and you just need to spend some time in stories just how brave they are to trial stuff because of the, the size that they are particularly in food that, that they, they can trial things and gives give things a go that maybe arguably that the bigger retailers won't be able to because they, they would need that that level of volume um and i just like that the quote in here about the uh, they are um the uh, group property uh, director said we know our customers trust us to deliver um first rate specialist service whether it be suit fitting for a big occasion or a, or a bra uh, fit appointment by one of our expert colleagues and you just think yeah MS still is a linchpin and a cornerstone of the high street will we see more will they move into services because that's where we want to spend our cash in services and that service experience and not something that you can just order online and, and get from Amazon the next day. So interesting. Yeah, I thought it was it's a super interesting move. And I think the point you raise about um, boots and, and, you know, upping the competition with boots, I think is is well made, not least because M&S have really ramped up their personal care and beauty offering, you know, particularly in um, in, in premium beauty. Um, so it, it, it definitely feels like they are trying to push more into areas that traditionally would have been associated with, with the boots. I do think it's quite interesting to see how what that does for them, the, the move into um, the optician services, what it does for them around attracting younger shoppers. Because, of course, the ongoing narrative um, with, with M&S has been, you know, that need to just make sure that the shopper base keeps being refreshed and that they are as relevant to today's younger shoppers as they are to perhaps some of the older demographics. So... I think it's going to be interesting to see how what they're going to do to make the optician service, which I suppose at least could feel a little bit like something that's targeted at slightly older demographics as someone who very much needs glasses. I know this is hopefully not just for for, for very old people, but um, but do you know what I mean it's it there, there is a sort of slight perception challenge potentially in saying does this feel like a really young thing um to be doing but yeah certainly interesting to see them diversify and as you say that move in into services um super interesting and yeah they, they are being brave they're trying new things and and they have to yeah you, you're right and well there's one close to you there's one at the metro center so you can go give that a go and see, see if you're the youngest in there <laughs> of course 
And I suppose you, you've jogged my memory there when you talk about beauty. You're right, and um, both Boots and MS are, are investing heavily in that area. But I think where these, um, and it's interesting that this is being delivered through Owl Optical um, and, and by that health provider, where they fail in store, both um, Boots and MS in beauty is they just don't have a specialist or if they do have a specialist and we see that in, in grocery retail across the piece and where counters were in play as well it wasn't always a specialist there to help and when it's high value purchases and you want to spend 100 odd pounds on a face cream you, you you want a bit of help and you want someone on your shoulder to say this is what you need not just somebody that that's not a specialist and that's where I think these service um uh diversifications will live and die by trade making sure you've got the right trained staff in store uh, to help upsell and help explain to consumers about uh, what it is they're getting rather than just getting it online otherwise why wouldn't you yeah and especially as you know there are obviously new formats with online shopping including things like live chatting and live streaming where actually you can get that get that advice as well I mean, I'm possibly a bit more of a sort of misery guts who wants to be left alone when shopping. So I, I actually think, yes, with opticians, you absolutely need that quality advice. People want to feel like they're, they're getting fantastic, uh, fantastic service. I actually think Boots and M&S have been really clever in pushing in premium beauty and making it feel much more accessible. And like you can browse and check out the prices without having someone on commission hovering wanting to push you in a certain direction because whilst well-trained beauty staff on these counters who give great advice are a wonderful asset it can also feel quite intimidating and like you're not able to get advice across a number of brands but you're only getting the spiel from whichever counter you've you've you know decided to rock up so I think um in, in many ways that sort of more general mainstream format where you can just have a look around, pick up products, look what the prices are. I think that has a place as well, but possibly that says a little bit more about how I feel about uh, being talked at or talked to when I go shopping than the average shopper. No, you're totally right. And I'm sure we've talked about it before that I I find those counters hugely intimidating because you're right, they're just going to sell what they want to sell. And the opportunity with Boots and and M&S here is they've got the whole range. So they could have someone talking across the range and saying, you know this product from here and that product from there and, the, and the, that would make me believe it but yeah you know I'm a sucker and a total consumer if someone says oh that's going to make you look five years <laughs> younger where do I sign I love it <laughs> brilliant Laura it's been so lovely to have you back on the pick list thank you so much for being my guest thank you for if, having me back oh, anytime if people want to find out more about Laven Park about me business women or Global Meat Alliance or just connect with you What's the best way to do that? Um, easiest way is either on LinkedIn, Laura Ryan, you'll find me easy, or um, lavenpark.co.uk and all the links to the three organisations are on there. Super. Laura, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving the picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.